This is Plugs Play Pedagogy, and that's me, Kyle Stedman from Rockford University, and Heather Brandstetter from the Virginia Military Institute, standing in front of a tank filled with fish and sharks at the Tampa Aquarium. It's very scary, yeah. And these shiny things with the flat faces, when they open their mouths every once in a while, it looks like their jaw is detached from the rest of their body. I want to latch on to that idea of surprising bigness here in episode eight, looking into the fish tank, tiny encounters at the conference on college composition and communication. That's right. This is a conference recap episode where I talk to lots of people for very short amounts of time at a big, important conference in rhetoric and composition studies. Welcome to Tampa. Welcome to the Four Seas 2015. That was Joyce Locke Carter conference chair of the 2015 meeting of four C's, which is what we call this conference, right? Four C's conference on college. You get it. Okay. Overblown metaphor alert. I think that we are a little bit like those fish in the tank that Heather and I were looking at. We're all swimming in our own different schools with our own focused areas of research and teaching, sometimes butting into water occupied by other folks and sometimes not. But we're all in the same tank, right? Especially at a giant conference like four C's. And I think that we're bigger than we think we are. That is, I think that some of us think, oh, you know, this is just my little area. No one else really knows about it or cares about it. But I think those little areas are more important individually and collectively than we sometimes remember. I think that if you look through the glass, right, we all look surprisingly large or, you know, our importance and influence looks large. I'm not saying that everyone is a huge person, but... I like large and big people and small people and medium people too. I like all of you. Okay, so here today, I want to share some of the currents of some of the fish in that tank. What I did at the conference was I walked around for the first couple of days with a microphone in my pocket. And it was a mic, I should say, that was graciously loaned to me by the good folks at UT Austin's Digital Writing and Research Lab. You should check them out. And I took that mic and I randomly went up to people and I asked them what they cared about. That's really it. I mean, some answered with hopes for where they hope the field will go in general. Some told me about specific areas of research that they really love to pieces. And some told me about organizations and initiatives that they're a part of that they want to invite you, friendly listener, to be a part of as well. And then just for fun, I also asked everyone what CCCC could stand for, you know, besides the Conference on College Composition and Communication. We'll get to that later at the end of the episode. Um, I should say that because I was often in loud, crowded rooms at the conference, this is a loud, crowded episode, but I, I think that's okay. Sound travels better underwater. So swim along with me, all right? So the first thing that I think of, uh, because of course this is my thing, which we're all going to do anyway, 
First, let's hear from two folks who told me ways that they can see the field growing in the future. This is Rachel Gramer and Megan Favor-Hartland, who are both from the University of Louisville. Is caring more about how to orient people when so many things are new. I was thinking about that this morning for like the newcomers breakfast and I was like how do I get on that committee because that's great and I think it would be fantastic so when it is like when so much is new how is it that we help people orient to that and I think it's really difficult to trace because we have normed all of the things that are now invisible to us right? it's hard to know what's new to everyone else right what's new to other people I and we we want to kind of push I think and talk about like what's new to us but what's new to us is not necessarily the same as what's new to people like in everyday practice yes. consistently, especially when like students are coming out of very different schooling environments or whatever it is. So. so a lot of the work that I do is in community engagement and I think that I think it might be time to sort of reassess how we're doing community engagement because I think it seems like a lot of these projects happen because it's just like we should be doing this so we're just going to go do it. And I think that taking some time to really sort of like theoretically and methodologically like plan out how we want ideas about community engagement to shift, especially at institutional levels, before we necessarily just get on the ground doing the work, could be really useful because higher education is definitely in this moment of shifting the ways that they're thinking about community engagement, and we should be part of that conversation, leading that conversation perhaps. So I think it could behoove us to very much be looking broader than just like what am I doing or what is my department doing and thinking about how that can sort of fit into institutional structures or how we can shape the institutional structures especially. Switching gears a little bit, later I talked to Stephen Hopkins from Arizona State University who told me about the kinds of panels that he'd been attending and the kind that he wants to see more of. So if I can if I can push this aquarium metaphor perhaps a bit further than I ought to, this conversation with Stephen was kind of like someone telling me about the best nooks and crannies in the coral reef, all those ones that he thinks are so awesome and he wishes he could wriggle even further into them and he wishes more of them had been kind of dug out. Um, now that I say that, I think I'm definitely pushing too hard on the metaphor. Okay, so, so here's Stephen. So the first panel I went to was about... Um, the body in digital writing. So I'm really into embodied cognition, like thinking about, I really like the idea of gut feelings and uh, um, the messiness of writing and and the complicatedness. I've been into Latour and actor network theory a lot lately that everything's complicated and messy and we need to embrace that. And so the, the, the panels that I've been going to are talking about that. And that's been really cool. I wish there was more of that. As I listen to Stephen talk about messiness, I hear a connection to the process of these recordings here, how some are messier than others due to the situations in which I recorded them. So consider this next clip. It's from a, a brief conversation I had with Matthew Osborne from Clemson University. I walked up to the table after his presentation. Matthew is pretty hard to hear in this clip because in this relatively quiet room, someone was right next to us also having a conversation. So the words tend to overlap, getting picked up in my okay but not really professional quality mic. Here, here's Matthew. I didn't the material and the phenomenal tend to be more obvious or more readily apparent in the sonic dimensions text. But what we can do is emphasize that our approach to sonic text can in fact be applied to virtual 
So he's tough to hear, but it's interesting, right? He's got me wondering in what way my recording practices straddle that line between the material and the phenomenal that he was talking about. And isn't it weird that I have a harder time perceiving Matthew's words in a relatively uncrowded space? While I could hear Stephen just fine, both materially with my microphone and perceptually with my brain, when we were speaking about messiness in that ultra-crowded, ultra-loud Marriott lobby. I know this isn't exactly the mess that Stephen was referring to, but I, I can't help but think about the ways our spaces and our tools affect the messiness of our communication. How there's this part of me that wants to clean things up and make them really shiny and use all the best equipment, but there's also a part of me that wants the mess itself to shine, you know, because that's how people in communication really are. Okay, and just because I can't help it, here's, here's a messy clip of all the people I interviewed talking at once. So swim through this mess with me for a second, people. The water is fine. So I could try to make a clever transition to this next clip from Caitlin Ray from the University of Nebraska at Omaha. She spoke to me about the importance of accessible panels. I think I'll just shut up and let you make the transition yourself. So here's Caitlin Ray. One in five people identify as having a disability, and that's really just for uh, people with documented disabilities. And so in order to make this conference more inclusive and to encourage our classrooms, once we come, go home from the conference, more uh, inclusive, then we need to be aware of um, how access uh, functions in our everyday lives and what the space tells us about uh, who belongs in the place. And so by doing all we can to make sure everyone in the room is uh, able to participate to their fullest abilities, uh, we feel that access um, speaks to all those things. That access helps us um, just be aware of our bodies in space and be aware that we are, um, you know, that we all have something of value to contribute. And we need that. We need those voices in the room. So we're going to do everything we can to get them there. These next two voices called for more connections to the work done in other fields. So this is Stephen Hammer from St. Joseph's University, who was eating his lunch standing up with Greg Wilson from Texas Tech, who speaks in there a little bit at the end. Um, their brief thoughts are followed by a clip from A.D. Carson at Clemson University. In terms of what I do, the, the, the intersections between like the art world or subcultures of art worlds and as writing is no longer like A, B, C, D, E, F, G anymore. Different kinds of composition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. I think there's a lot to learn from people who've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. You know? Um, so, I mean, and they and talk a lot. Of, they, they've got theories. They've got conversations in the art world that totally. we're not listening to. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. So that's, that's, I think, what I'm thinking about the most, or what I, like... I always end up talking about or thinking about. I like it. And I, because I have one foot in the art world. I think that we have so much, um, there's so much interest in, you know, in popular culture and popular music, and there, there's uh, there's so much really cool stuff that, that's going on. Uh, for instance, like this Kendrick Lamar album, that we can, if we look at the, like, well, what is he doing in this, you know, this conversation that he's having, you know, let's say he's having a conversation with Tupac Shakur. Like, what does that do for us, you know, as teachers? Like, how do we get through to, 
those students who really can relate to that. And it's, I think it's a really complex project. And that's what we do in so much of the rest of our work, right? Yeah. We talk about re responding to each other and being in conversation. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and so I think that it's, it's really important that we, we give that some space. I mean, it doesn't have to be all that we do, but it can be a thing that we use because we know that it's going to be effective. Yeah. 9.6 million streams in one day. I didn't know that. 9.6 million Spotify <laughs> streams in one day. Broke the world record. That's huge. Like, yeah. like, That's so, so we should yeah. be involved in that because chances are somebody in that classroom streamed that out. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just another way to, I think, engage. I like it. I know I haven't been plugging the awesome work of all of these people I've been talking to. Most of them are on Twitter. You can find them pretty easily. I'll put um, information and links that I have on my show notes um, so you can read and click. Um, but in this case, I really have to mention that you can hear some of A.D. Carson's music at adthegreat.com. And that's actually spelled out. It's like A-Y-D-E-E. -E, get it? Like adthegreat.com. And he's also at soundcloud.com at A.D. Carson. And then it's just the letters, like letter A, letter D, Carson. Um, and, and by the way, he, he wrapped his presentation at Four Seas this year. Uh, pretty, pretty cool stuff. Being respectful to the people in the next room, it should be much louder. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you can be a nigga just like me, walk, talk, act just like me, roll over bed, fetch like me, get a check like me, be a slave, put a chain around your neck like me. You can be a nigga just like me, walk, talk, act just like me, roll over bed, fetch like me, get a check like me. So let me transition now to three people with invitations. And I know, I know what you're thinking. When you're a fish in a crowded tank, it seems like there are easy snacks everywhere and you're afraid of biting onto a fishing hook that will take more of your time and energy than you want to give. But that is not even close to the case here. These three people want to share the amazing work they're doing because, you know, it, it's actually amazing. And collaboration is what we do so well in this field, right? So let's collaborate. First, here's Amanda LeCastro from CUNY. She's talking about the writing studies tree. So the Writing Studies Tree is an academic genealogy project, which put simply is like a family tree for academics. You can put in who your ancestors are, meaning the people who've mentored you in various ways, your descendants, meaning those who you have mentored in various ways, and also your siblings. So people you've worked alongside, either as co-author or worked on a project with, shared an office with, all those kinds of things. Cool. So, so it looks huge. I'm looking at the... It is thing. huge. We actually have almost 5,000 people institutions in the site already and that's completely crowdsourced so we really rely on people like yourself and other people attending conferences to join the site put in their information but also to add other scholars and institutions where they've worked or who they've worked with so that they can not only increase their own family tree but include them in the full network which allows us to do analysis and figure out what's going on in our field so how does mentoring really play an important role in our field cool. and I feel like I I feel like we have a field where mentoring is such a big deal. So That's exactly our premise, yeah. Um, although they do have academic family trees in mathematics and neuroscience, we felt, with, particularly with writing studies, that it captures a more dynamic um, world of mentoring and relationships because we have writing program administrators, we have committee members, we have professors, we often co-author articles or books with people. I think it's definitely more complex than in the sciences where you're talking about basically lab work yeah. and dissertation lines. Definitely. 
The Writing Studies Tree is online at who would have thought writingstudiestree.org. Check it out, make an account, make some connections, and I promise you'll get sucked into the fun. They also usually have a table up at Four C's and some other conferences too, so stop and chat because they're nice and so are you. Next, here is Janice Walker from Georgia Southern University talking about LILAC. Well, LILAC stands for Learning Information Literacy Across the Curriculum. It is a multi-institutional study of student information-seeking behaviors. Uh, What we're looking at is what they've been taught, what they think they know, uh, you know, what they retain, in other words, and how it possibly transfers. Um, Then we have them, uh, we do have them complete a questionnaire where we ask them, information and then we have them do a 15-minute research uh, exercise and we capture that you know we do a screen capture and we have them narrate what they're doing and more importantly why they are doing what they're doing as they do this we call it a research allowed protocol or wrap video what we are hoping to get out of this study is some ideas of what we as teachers are, and librarians are doing well, what we're not doing so well, what students are not understanding in the way we had hoped or retaining, and frankly, what we can learn from students that maybe we should be doing more of. Uh, we've had very a, a lot of conference presentations and conversations with a wide variety of faculty and librarians from institutions and it is fascinating uh, to look at. The videos will be freely available on YouTube when I get them posted and we will share the data but we are still looking for people to partner with us from different types of institutions to collect this data and make it really useful. You can learn more about the Lilac Project at lilac-group.blogspot.com. I always just Google Lilac Project or sometimes Lilac Janice when I'm trying to find it. You can always just look for Janice and ask her about it. She will definitely tell you. Finally, here's a clip from Scott Reed at Georgia Gwinnett College. Like Amanda at the Writing Studies Tree Table, you'll often see Scott behind the table of Seize the Day, the conference game that rewards connection-making and fun-having. I actually think Seize the Day is one of the best things about our field, but I'm, I'm going to let him explain. Why does Seize the Day matter? It matters because not everybody shows up at this conference knowing what the conference is. It matters because not everybody belongs to the conference the same way. So the the concept behind the game is to use game concepts as a way of encouraging participation for people for whom that might not come as easily or as naturally because nobody shows up having a cognitive map built in of what the conference is supposed to be. So we design the quests not only to get people to expose themselves to the conference and get them to belong to the conference and understand that they can go and do all of these things. But we also create quests that are about, that do what games usually do, which is get people to work together towards common ends. They encourage people to give things to each other. They encourage people to traffic in small tokens like Sparkle Ponies and pretend they mean something because for the time being we're playing the game, we can make that mean something. Now, so what if I was devil's advocate and I said, but wait, I thought this was like a super serious academic scholarly thing where I'm supposed to like like look like really grown up and not not have fun or, or play at all. What, what would you say to that? 
first of all, I would refer you to the Department of Adam Banks, um, who said some interesting words this morning about our, about how our discipline might be better served if we got over this narrative of taking ourselves too seriously. Here's that clip of Adam Banks' chair address that he was referring to. I'm talking about funk as a guiding idea for who we are in our thinking, teaching, making, and doing because for just a minute, I want us to drop our serious, scholarly persona and just talk together. I want us to move forward knowing that just like protesters in Ferguson and New York in the Bay Area and Cleveland teach us, respectability will not save us in the streets or in the classroom in relationships or in politics or even in a brilliant presidency. It will not save us in the academy either. So just like Viola Davis took off her wig on how to get away with murder and let the nation know she would not be defined by someone else's oppressive standards, I want us to take off our own respectability politics for a minute and realize that no matter how much we push our students to dismiss their home languages for some assimilated standardized version, respectability will not save them or us. I want us to realize that the funkiness of Seize the Day and our Sparkle Ponies is one of the best things about us. And that even if we did not have them, the Chronicle still wouldn't understand us and much less save us. I am beyond grateful that Sparkle Ponies roam our halls and listen in on our sessions and inspire the connections across people and ideas that open up space for new imaginative teaching and scholarship and make people feel welcome and at home in the process. I want us to realize the respectability of having fellows like other learned societies will not save us. I want us to realize that all our citations of high theory will not save us, and neither will try to show that we are as rigorous and as serious as some of our literary colleagues save us. one more clip for you and it's really the longest one for a couple of reasons. It's a conversation I had with two good friends from grad school. Kate Pandalides from Eastern Michigan University and Megan McIntyre soon to start a new job at Dartmouth College. Yeah, that Dartmouth. It's a long clip partly because I want to give a fairly unedited experience of how our conversation flowed, where it went, what currents we swam in and out of, the connections we made together. I'm also putting it here after that Seize the Day conversation with Scott because of how much I appear in both. I I mean, think about the genre of the interview. It's kind of weird, right? It, It says, here I am, a reporter on things that you know about, and I will stick a mic in your face and I will report on what you say as if I have no positionalities of my own. 
We all know that research that hides the researcher is, in a sense, false. The researcher is always present in some way. And I think informal interviews for our podcast are a little bit like this, too. I mean, in reality, I'm talking to my interviewees, and we're building up excitement together. We're inventing our ideas collaboratively. So I kind of like that there's something of me here in some of these clips more than others. I mean, not out of this narcissistic, hey, listen to me, I've got some things to say. I'm the one with the podcast. But out of a, let's not pretend here that I don't have a stake in how this information is collected, how it's packaged, how it's distributed. I really wish that more final products in the world in any genre would show more of the messy means through which they were invented, arranged, and stylized, including how they were collaboratively come up with. You know what I mean? So here's me with Kate and Megan. We're sitting outside a bar in downtown Tampa at night. Our eyes are glittering with excitement in the darkness. What matters in the field? Relationships. Why relationships? Because theory matters. And this is what we're saying. That theory, and theory is what has to be there. I, like, I went to two amazing panels today. Yeah. And and when it, like for me, what I always go back to is methodology. Yeah. Like, let's look at how the method functions. And why is the method functioning that way? And it's always about the theory, like the theoretical framework. And so certain methods need certain theories. Certain data sets need certain methods. And, and, and methods within methods are embedded theories and, and beliefs about what discourse means and values. So tie that to relationships. Yeah. Okay, yes, yeah, sorry. So in the sessions I was I was going to today, I was trying to trace back to like, all right, we need to be smart about our methodologies and that ties to theory, but ultimately what we're using using those methodologies for are to talk about how relationships function in the field. Yes. And so that means then that means many things. So like in terms of the apprentice model which we're based on like the graduate student and the professor. For sure. That matters. And then the interview participant and the interviewer. Like those relationships are where all of our data comes from. And we actually care about about that in this field. Like we really we really care about setting up ways to, to do that in an ethical right way. Right. And we don't only care about it, but like those things mean. Yeah. They show up in our work. They show up in our work, but they're like they're not demand that they show up in our work. And they're not just representative. Like so if we say if we like take for if we take to heart the things we say in theory, like, you know, these are discourse and genres, these are social actions. They're doing something. They're not just representative of something. We're not just deriving meaning from analysis. Like, they're actually... It's not determinative. Right, right. This is just, this is actually doing something. So, all of these things, they are meaningful and they matter in themselves. And when we make sense of them in a larger, you know, we're, we're doing analysis of them, they they mean in a larger way for their discipline or whatever. Whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then <laughs> we need to you're, you're good. You're, you're, no, you're doing so good. You're doing so good. Oh, yeah. It's the bartender Mate. who's been fucking sour on everybody all night. She, when I was in the job market, which is fresh in my mind because it just ended. When I was praised on the Lord um, two weeks ago. Praise the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was just a secret way of me telling you that I got a job. Um, no, I, I had this conversation. It was the last campus visit that I did, and I was so tired. And somebody asked me, and I'd been much more guarded at other in other conversations. But somebody asked me, like, what's the foundation of your work? What's the foundation of your teaching philosophy? And I was like, it's empathy. Like the foundation of my teaching philosophy. The foundation. 
foundation of my work is empathy, and I think that that's one of the foundational sort of precepts of our field. Is like we have to care about how other people live their lives. Yeah. Rhetoric is about understanding how people talk about themselves, tell their stories, live their lives. Like if that's rhetoric at its best, when we get to a, we get to tell people, we get to have people explain to us how they live, and we get to help them make meaning from that, and then we get to share their stories with other people. Right? Really great qualitative work shares people's stories. Um, and that's why even though it's maybe not the best methodological study, Catherine Keller Stone's study of, of women in Appalachia is my favorite. The foundation of my teaching philosophy, the foundation of post-pedagogy, what Santos is writing about, what he and I wrote about, what I sort of try and live out when I teach is that it matters how other people understand themselves and it matters that there's a space in college to figure this stuff out, to figure out how you learn and how you make things, how you fail and do something else to, to address the failure. What better environment but we have we have so beaten out of our students. Thank you. Failure. Right, like K twelve, K twelve tells them if you fail, you are a failure. Right, like you are a failure. The fail, the to fail in a class, to not be successful in a project or a class or get by, um, means that you are a failure as a human. And if we can't make room in a writing class, that, that's half of my like first first year writing classes. Like, if you've been told your whole life that you suck at writing, like, please let's just. Chill out and like play around a little, and I swear it'll be okay. Like yeah. that's that's fifty percent of what and I'm that's doing. Why I think it's like, a relationship. It's yeah. a relationship, and I uh, think it has to start with empathy. You have to care that this other person has a life experience. That this other person has, and it's meaningful. And it's meaningful. And it works in the classroom, and we draw on that. It has to matter. Like this is the thing, and I know this is a, a sort of random connection, but the reason I'm so passionate about including non-humans in the way that we understand. Um, agency and classrooms and spaces and rhetoric is because of something Latour said. Latour said the way we make collectors more humane is to recognize the non-humans. And we do that because we have to care for the non-humans. The non-humans can't speak for themselves and it's a, in some ways, and this isn't the only thing, the non-humans matter because they matter, but it's also a way of learning how to speak for someone else in ways that are true to that experience. When we learn to speak for non-humans, when we learn to speak to non-humans and with them. And I think that's what, what pedagogy has to be, too. But we always approximate that. And I think we have to think about that also in terms of our students. Like, absolutely. We're always trying to do things for our students yeah. and representative of our students, but we always have to recognize that we are never representing them and we're never getting exactly what they need. Yes. And it always has to work on an individual level. And that's what's cool about the field, that we, we're interested in big data and we're interested in trends. But ultimately, I mean, I'm a microanalysis person, so Absolutely. You know, like, ultimately, it's like, let's look at what is happening on an individual level, and what can we learn from that, and how does that remind us that that's what it always comes back to? Well, like, this is why the Writing Center is my yeah. home and the love of my life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because it's the space that we have always, since 
it's sort of inclusion in the field as a thing. Right. It's the place where we have always said to students, like, you matter. Yeah. Like, even when we had this sort of prescriptive, more prescriptive laboratory model, we were still saying to students, like, you're struggling with something. I care about that and I want to help you. And let's talk about why. Let's talk about why. Let's talk about how you can do that thing. Let's let you do the thing and I'm here to support you. And I think as Writing Center Theory has evolved and gotten less directive and we've gotten a little bit more minimalist, we have better let students talk and speak and tell us what they need. But I think from its foundation, the Writing Center and Writing Center Theory and Pedagogy has been about recognizing the student as an individual who matters in education. Okay, I'm going to turn it off at that point. You're my favorite people. Okay, finally, just for fun, here are a few things that CCCC could stand for in the words of the interviewees that you heard earlier. And now that I'm saying that, I'm, I'm interested in the conditionality of that word could, what it could stand for. And because, of course, it does stand for these things. It does stand for whatever we want to make it stand for, right? Kind of? Okay, here you go. Well, I mean, cookies. Uh, so cookies are really good. Cookies and cream convention collaboration. I don't know. I really I don't like know. That. I see cool cats coming at composition. I like it. Cool cats coming at composition. Yeah. No. Composition and cats and cats and cats. That's a lot of Because cats. a lot of I feel like I feel like having a cat is a comp thing and I didn't like I feel like I didn't know people who had cats before I was in rhetoric and composition, and everyone has a cat. That's tricky. Can I get back to you? Yeah, totally. <laughs> cats colliding in yeah. covert co-ops. I don't know. Cranial collapse comes. I don't know. Civilian <laughs> conservation for communism. If we want to go back to the. Uh... Absolutely. With WPA, right? We pulled it to the writing program administrator, works program administration. <laughs> what else could CCCC stand for? Relationships. No, I mean like a letter. Complexity and uh, complicatedness and, uh, you know, crowds. Complicated crowds uh, composing. Composing. Carnivorously. <laughs> and cardigans. And, and cardigans. cardigans. Oh, that's a good one. So, and with that, we're at the end of the episode. Thanks again to all of the gracious people who chatted with me at the conference. I'll type their names in the show notes so you won't have to hear me say them all again here. But man, they're great and nice. Plugs Play Pedagogy is licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International License. That means that you can distribute it for free as long as you give me some credit and don't make money off of it. It's written and produced by me, Kyle Stedman, from Rockford University. You can contact me with show ideas on Twitter at kstedman or plugsplaypedagogy at writingcomments.org. You can also hear, I think, that I want to know what you think matters and what you want to tell the world about, right? 
I mean, like next month, we're going to talk about student podcast pedagogy. Not because I like dreamed it up and I was like, hey, we need to talk about this, but because a friendly person like you suggested it and we made it happen. Be the change you want to see, blah, blah, blah. Okay, my theme music is by Cactus May, graduate student at Ohio University. The rest of the music you heard in the show was from the free video game remixes available at Overclocked Remix. That's ocremix.org. I'll give names and links to specific tracks in my show notes. I'm recording in April in Rockford, Illinois, where the flowers have been pushing their way out of the ground for a few weeks now. And I can tell you that they are so strong that last night's freak freeze warning didn't harm them at all. Because flowers, like composition scholars, are freaking tough, y'all. This is Plugs Play Pedagogy.